Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Quite a few years ago, my friend Mark Young called me and told me that he had a brain tumor. And I was a little thrown back by it at first. I almost didn't know what to say. It just caught me so off guard. I asked how bad it was and and he said he was going into surgery the next day. And at first, I didn't know what to do. So I kind of I talked to him for a few minutes. And then I told him, of course, that we'd be praying for him and that we cared about him. And I got off the phone and I told my wife, Lisa, and, and we started to talk about it because they're like family to us. She's like, you just, we just, you, you got to go. And I said, I know it. I got to get down there. And so I called him back and I said, sorry, it took me a few minutes to gather my thoughts. I said, but I, I man, I'm just going to, I'm going to head down. I got, I got to be there. And so we went down for it. The tumor is down in between the two hemispheres of the brain. So they had to go split it in half and go down inside of it to get that tumor out. And so it was very risky surgery. I remember when he was prepared to go into surgery, he was just getting, just making sure his heart was right with the Lord and he just depending on the Lord. And, and I remember when he was getting wheeled into surgery, he quoted from the book of Job and he said, though he slay me, yet will I praise you. And he came out of that surgery and he was doing well. He seemed to be recovering well and we got to go in and see him and, and everything was going fine. Myself and Gretchen, his wife, and, and the family, uh, a bunch of family members were there out in the waiting room. And then uh, and all of a sudden, he started having trouble breathing and he's gasping for a breath and now they're scrambling and they're bringing in doctors and nurses and they're, they're rushing him off to, to, I think it was an MRI, to see what was going on in there and to see what was causing this problem because things were going downhill very quickly. And then I remember the surgeon came back and he met with Gretchen and a few of us and we went in the room and he told Gretchen, he said, well, what's going on is he did well through the surgery but in the recovery from the surgery, his brain has swelled because of the trauma of the surgery. And so it's putting pressure on the brain stem and it's causing too much pressure. And so it's killing him. He says, I need your permission. He says, we need to go back in and we need to take off 15% of his brain off of the one side. That'll allow room for the swelling. Gretchen had questions. She said, well, what's the likely outcome of that? What's going to happen? You know, what kind of shape is he going to be left in in the end? And the doctor informed her that that part of the brain, he should, he should do all right. You know, we don't use much of our brain anyway, I'm told. And I experience on my own part many times. But he said 15% of your brain where you're going to lose it there. He may struggle with a couple things, but he's, going to, he's probably going to be fine. He says, can't give you guarantees on anything. He answered a few of her questions, and then he encouraged her. And he said, you know what, I don't think it's time. I don't think it's time to talk about whether, you know, do not resuscitate, those kind of things. I think it's really time to act here. And get him into surgery, get that out of there, give him that room for the swelling to happen, and go that route. And so, you know, based on the answers to her questions, the information that the doctor gave to her, and the encouragement that he gave, she made the logical decision. And you know what, Mark's still with us today. He's not done with his fight with this tumor. He's had four surgeries on this tumor uh, through the remaining 16 years. 
Uh, but you know what? At the same time, well, his third child is getting married in August. We're going down for the wedding. And so he's got to see his children married, his uh, first grandchild born, second one's on the way. And, and it's not done yet. I'm not putting him in the grave yet. But like I said, that tumor's still there. It, it still kind of grows back a little bit or at least forms scar tissues to cause some problems. Down through the years, what's he had trouble with? He had a little trouble with math for a while. A little trouble with numbers. A little trouble with spatial things. But other than that, pretty much back to normal. All because Gretchen was able to make a logical decision at the time when it was needed. It promoted, it gave Mark life. Well, you know what? In the book of Hebrews, that's really kind of the point we're at right here. He's just calling on the people to make a logical decision. Just make a decision that makes sense. He's been showing them how Jesus Christ is the best deal. It is to their benefit to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ or for those who have made that profession to not fall back away from it, but to draw closer to Him in this. In fact, it's really the theme of the whole book. Through the whole book, we've seen where Jesus Christ is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron and the old priesthood. He's superior to everything. And so because of that, because of who He is, we're foolish to fall away from Christ. We really need to hold close. And notice the first word of this passage. It starts off with the word therefore, which means it's connected. It's connected to what He said before this. The fact that Jesus is the better deal, the fact that He is superior to all those things. Then therefore, we need to do something. We need to act. We need to act on good information. Now, notice as we go through the passage, there's another word that's repeated in here, starting in verse 19 and then again in verse 21, and it's the word since. He says, therefore, brothers, since, and he's going to point out that we have two things. And what are the two things that we have? The first thing that we have is we have confidence. Since we have confidence in verse 19. And then when he gets to verse 21, he's going to say, since we have a great high priest. And then after that, he's going to do three times, and we're not going to cover all three of them today. We're only going to cover two, because of, just because of time. But he's going to tell us three times, let us do something. In other words, therefore, based on everything I've already said, since we have confidence, and since we have a great high priest, let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this. He's going to have these three actions. But notice, it's, it's all in a logical progression. Based on the logic that we looked at last time, that Jesus is the better deal, this is the course of action that makes sense for us to follow. And so let's notice quickly, he's just kind of reviewing here. Notice it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. What have we learned about that? He said that he's been talking a lot about the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. And remember what the tabernacle was. It was a, a representation of the presence of God. But in Hebrews, it points out that that Old Testament tabernacle and that New Testament temple that was there when Jesus was here, those were just, remember the words that he used? They were a copy. They were a pattern. They were a shadow of the real thing, the real presence of God that exists in heaven. So he says now, because we have confidence to enter the true holy places. In other words, he's saying the presence of God. We can have confidence to walk into the presence of God. Well, then he goes on from there. It says, by, there's a, there's a way that we do it, and it's through the blood of Christ. And you remember he's been talking about that too. He says that we enter into there by the blood of Jesus. And he's comparing this to two different things, the sacrifices and the priesthood. And he's pointed out for us that it's not like the old priesthood. The old priesthood, because of the sinfulness of the priest, they had to offer a sacrifice first for their own sins to cleanse themselves before they could offer a sacrifice for others. He said Jesus doesn't have to do that because He's perfect. Not only that, but the priests had to offer their sacrifice repeatedly 
over and over and over again. We talked about that last time because it was never sufficient. It was never finished. It was never satisfactory. Jesus offered himself once and for all. And then thirdly, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away a person's sins. But Jesus shed his own blood, laid down his own life for us. So it was a man paying for man's sin. And so it was an adequate, it was a sufficient sacrifice. But then he also points out, he says, by a new and living way. And this new and living way. The new is referring to the covenant. Remember he talked about how God had made a covenant with Old Testament Israel. But then by the time it got to Jeremiah, which is 600 years before the time of Christ, God said through Jeremiah that he was going to make a new covenant, making the other one old, making the other one obsolete. And so this new way through Jesus Christ would fulfill that and do away with the old. And then he also points to the living way. And that's in contrast to the priests. Because remember the priests, they had many priests through the years because they kept dying. The priests kept dying. How can a priest that keeps dying grant eternal life? It's very different with Jesus when it compared him to Melchizedek and Jesus as priest, not on the ordinance of the old dying priest, but by the power of an endless life, it said. And you know what? That is really the point. You know how people knew that they were accepted before God? If the priest came out of offering the sacrifice alive. Because if it was an unacceptable sacrifice, the priest would die. But if it was a successful sacrifice, the priest would come back out of the Holy of Holies alive. And that's why we have Jesus Christ risen again from the dead. He went in, offered himself as the sacrifice, and returns, comes back out of there alive. And so we know, remember all these things are are emphasizing confidence. The confidence. We can have confidence to enter God's presence today that they never, never were able to have before. Because they were trusting in a system that was offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because they weren't good enough. Their priests were dying And Jesus comes, offers himself as a once and for all sacrifice for sin, never to be repeated because it's completely sufficient, and he comes out of there alive. We have that confidence. Now, these two things are coupled together. The confidence we have, since we have confidence, and since we have this great high priest. Why did they have priests in the Old Testament? You notice we don't have priests in the New Testament. The New Testament, when you study the church and the church officers, we find pastors and deacons. Called by different names, overseers, elders, bishops. The only place you find the priesthood in the New Testament is referring to those Old Testament priests before Christ died. Or the book of Hebrews comparing them, Christ with the Old Testament priesthood. Or the Bible speaks in the New Testament of us all being priests before God in the priesthood of the believer. In other words, we all have this access to God now that you used to have to go to a priest for. We don't have to do that anymore because we have this completely sufficient high priest, Jesus Christ. But when we think back about it, what was the job of a priest? A priest was to bring you to God. If you wanted to get to God, you had to go through the priest. You had to draw near to God through Him. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, once and for all accomplished. And so now we all have access into God's presence through the blood of Christ. And so we can have complete confidence. If I was to enter into God's presence trying to be confident of my own self, trying to be confident in my own righteousness, my own works, I would have no confidence. I'm thankful that I'm not left to coming before God with a confidence that is of my own. It is only through Jesus Christ and His bloodshed for me that I have access to God. But because of that bloodshed, because He is my great high priest, I have complete access to God. Remember back in chapter 4? It told us we could boldly enter. And so when I think back to these things, all the things that he's told us, showing us the supremacy of Christ and all that we have in Jesus Christ, 
the only logical decision for me is to draw near. Well, that's what I want to consider this morning. The logical response to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ of himself on that cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. Well, first of all, he says that the logical response is to let us draw near. Now, this idea of drawing near is not foreign to us in the book of Hebrews. We've come across it several times. Back in chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 19, he told them, The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And in Hebrews chapter 7.25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, when we get up to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, he's also going to tell us that without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know, the, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is you had a bunch of Christians that had put their faith in Christ and now they're getting pressured. They're getting pressured from family members. They're getting pressured from community members. They're getting pressured by authorities and they're getting persecuted. Because of that, they're tempted to draw back, to fall away from Christ. He's telling them, don't draw back. Draw near. Everything that we have in Christ is so much greater than anything that you could try to hold on to in your life now. If you take everything away, even family, even life itself, you are still better off in Christ. You have an eternal life, an eternal inheritance, an eternal hope built on better sacrifices in Christ. Well, as we consider this then, he says we need to draw near. It must be done in sincerity. He says draw near with a true heart. You know, Old Testament or New Testament, that's really what it's all about. The Old Testament, they were told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord their God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That's what he called them to back in the Old Testament. The New Covenant, in that sense, isn't really much different. It's the same calling. It's just going to happen from the heart now instead of being printed on tablets of stone. It's written on our heart. In Sunday school, we were talking about practicalities in our life. How do we know that we're, we're putting God above everything else? How do we measure that in our life? How do we know? And we're coming up with practical ways. But in the end, we came down to this one thing that you cannot just make a list of rules. You cannot just make a list of things that says, I did this, I did this, I did this, and so I'm right with God. It comes down to the heart. Now, yes, if you love God, you're going to do a bunch of things. And there's a bunch of other things you're not going to do because they're not consistent with the nature and the character and the holiness of God. But the fact of the matter is is he's calling us to this relationship. We draw near to God. It has to be with a sincere heart. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were the opposite of that. They were doing a bunch of things to make it look like they were drawing near to God. But Jesus said, your heart is far from me. And so he used that word that we all hate, right? Hypocrisy. Anything I don't want to be in my life, it's a hypocrite. But I've got to admit, sometimes I'm drawn toward it. Sometimes I'm tempted to try to look better than I actually am. And that's when I need to focus and check my heart. Well, he says we need to come with a, with a sincere heart, with a true heart. But not only that, he says in confidence, a full assurance of faith. Not wavering. These people were wavering. They weren't, they weren't steadfast. They were, they were being pressured and kind of giving in to the pressure a little bit. Put yourself in their place. I've done it many times as I've studied this book. I can't imagine what it's life, like to live in their shoes. They may have had their property taken from them, their home. Maybe you're sitting in jail, in prison. You've been publicly ridiculed in your society in the town that you're living in. That'd be hard to take. Right? If you own a business, people are probably done shopping at your business. They're going somewhere else. 
to somebody who's faithful to Judaism because you're in that society. Your kids are probably getting picked on on the way to school, on the way back, maybe treated unfairly by teacher. There's all kinds of injustices that you're experiencing in your life only because you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. They're shying back. They're pulling back. If we could just go back to life as normal, life as usual. You know what? Life as usual is not worth it if you've got to sacrifice Christ, if you've got to give him up. We can go through pressures like that too. I know when I came to Christ, not everybody around me really understood why I did it or thought it was a great thing in my life. Some of your friends kind of seem to drop off. Some people don't understand. I've never had to go through the things that are listed that the Hebrews had to go through. But even if we do, Christ is worth it. So we draw near to him through sincerity. We also draw near to him through confidence, through the steadfastness. We also draw near to him through purity. Notice what it says, with, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And then it also goes on and says, and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, you have an internal cleansing and an external cleansing. So it's talking about an internal purity and an external purity. The two things go together. If we find ourselves doing things corruptly with our body, it's because it came from somewhere. It comes from our heart. Just like Jesus said, out of, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we find corrupt communication or or hurtful ideas come out of our mouth, it's revealing to us an ugliness that is inside of us. But the really awesome thing that he's pointing out to here is that we are cleansed. We can be cleansed from that. In fact, we focused on it quite a bit last week, so I'm not going to do it a lot this week. But remember, he was talking about the cleansing of our conscience. And he pointed out that those Old Testament sacrifices, because they had to be done every year, year after year after year, they constantly reminded the people, you're a sinner. You don't measure up. You need to be sacrificed for. Something innocent has to die because of you. They were constantly reminded of that year after year after year. But he says, in Jesus Christ, he was sacrificed once for all, done. So he said, whereas those old sacrifices were a continual reminder of our sin, He says, now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You can forget about it. Not that you haven't learned the lesson to stay out of it, but you don't have to beat yourself up about it anymore. God says, I have forgotten it. I will remember it no more. We can have such a clean conscience that they're actually separate from us. They're actually washed away. They're taken care of. They're gone. They're forgotten. I love that. And then that conscience, as we live out our life, will reflect itself on the outside. And he says, our body is washed also. It could be referring to baptism. Because baptism is kind of the initiation rite of Christianity. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get baptized. We get lowered under the water. That's a picture of Jesus dying and being buried. And then we get raised out of the water. It's a picture of Him rising again from the dead. And it's saying, I am now dead with Christ. I'm united with Him in His death. And I'm united with Him in His resurrection. And so now I'm going to live dead to my sins and alive to Jesus Christ. So it could be referring to our baptism, but it doesn't specifically mention it as such. It could also just be referring to the cleansing that we receive when we put our faith in Christ. That we're clean. The Bible does does this in other places. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. So it talks about that as the Holy Spirit comes into our being and regenerates us and renews us, that we are washed in that. And we also find it in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26. It says that He might sanctify her, talking about Christ's relationship with the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. It says that Christ has washed His church. 
But it's not referring to baptism. It's referring to the cleansing that we get from the Word of God. And so it's not necessarily baptism. But you know what? I don't think it's wrong to just keep all of that in mind. I think it's probably referring to the washing, to the cleansing that we have from Christ through our salvation. But that is pictured for us in our baptism that we go through when we put our faith in Christ. And so I don't think it's wrong to think of all of those things all kind of boiled in there in one. In fact, I would think that as this letter was read to those Hebrew believers, as that passage was come across, they were probably reminded of their baptism, even though it's not specifically mentioned. But the washing of the outside, it's not just our inner heart that matters, it's our body, it's our our whole being. We are made of immaterial soul, spirit, and we're made of material flesh and blood. And our whole being is important to God, and Jesus Christ washed us inside and out. And so we're to be pure in the heart and pure externally as well. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies and our souls are important to God. He's redeemed them both. The first let us is let us draw near, he says. And the second let us, he says, is hold fast. Again, this is not unfamiliar language with him in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3, verse 6, he already told us, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You know, when we went through that passage and studied it, we recognized that this is how he was identifying his people. Who are the children of God? They are the people that hold fast. They are the people that stand firm. They are the people that hang on. That's what faith does. Faith is what gives us the substance, the strength, to be able to hang on when things are tough. Make the right decision when the right decision is not popular. To live for God when people around you don't understand. Well, also he told us in chapter 14 and verse 14, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And then in verse 18 of chapter 6, So that by two unchangeable things, which if you remember what those were, the unchangeable things were the position of God and the character of God, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. As we look at that concept, the first thing that we see that this involves is a confession. He tells them to hold fast to the confession of their hope. The confession of their hope. What what does that mean? Well, confession obviously is something that comes from our mouth. He's he's talking about the time when these people voiced that they were trusting in Christ. Now they're being tempted to tone it down. Now they're tempted to put Christ aside. What we say matters. The passage we read this morning in Sunday school that we're studying, Jesus said those who own him, he will own. Those who deny him, he will deny. There have been people down through the ages who have paid for the words out of their mouth with their lives. Because they've been put in a place that either you deny Christ or you die. In fact, I remember reading in a book years ago, I think it might have been Fox's Book of Martyrs, about these, I think it was three gentlemen. They got arrested and they got brought before the court and they were told, you, you deny Christ or you're burned at the stake. Two of them said no. 
One of them denied Christ. They put the stake in the ground and they put the fire and they lit the fire to these two people that were being burned at the stake. And the third person was in the crowd. And you know what? That third person left the crowd. He says, I denied Christ and I shouldn't have. I renounced that. And he stepped into that fire without anything holding him. And he stayed there until he died. All for a confession. What we say out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's through faith in our heart and the confession of our mouth that we come to Jesus Christ and we trust in Him. And these people have done that. And He's saying, no matter what it costs you, hang on to that. Hold fast to that confession. Do not deny Christ. You're way better off for it. And then He says, commitment. He says, without wavering. You know, John MacArthur in his uh, commentary pointed this out very aptly. He said, you know, there's really, there's really kind of three things that are involved in salvation from our end. And those three things are, one, uh, a recognition. A recognition that we need to be saved. A recognition that we've sinned against a holy God and we, because of that we need the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The second thing is content. That Jesus died on the cross for us and He rose again from the dead to overcome our sin, to give us forgiveness of sins. But there's still one thing remaining. And this is where a lot of people get stuck. I think that we've got, there are people in our world today that think that, oh yeah, I have eternal life because I know Jesus died on the cross. I know He, I know he rose again from the dead. But there's one thing remaining, commitment. That's where what the Bible talks about believing in, trusting in. We come to the point where we commit to Christ. Not just that, yes, you did do that at one point in history, but you did that for me and I own it. It's mine. I'm yours. And that's what he's calling for him here. He says, look, let us hold fast. Nothing wavering, not wavering. We're all in, even if it costs us. Even if it costs us ridicule. Even if it costs us possessions. Even if it costs us life itself. We need to be committed. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the beginning and the witnesses to that and ending looking forward to our resurrection. He ends that chapter with this statement, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, it's in our relationship with the Lord and in our service to Him. That's the only place we find anything eternal. That's, a, that's really the spot where everything lasts. Jesus said, if you're spinning your wheels on this earth, if you're laying up all your treasures where moth corrodes and, and rust destroys, then you've made a very poor investment. He says, if you're sending it on ahead, if you're laying up your treasure in heaven where there's no moths and there's no rust, you've made a very good investment in your lives. That's exactly what these people in the book of Hebrews are being called to. He's saying, look, don't give up the eternal for the temporary. And it's the same thing for us. We have so many temporary things biding for our affections and biding for our devotion and our time and our talents. Are we going to ignore the eternal things for the temporary things? Are we going to be committed, committed to Jesus Christ? And then lastly, the cause. Why should we hold fast? Why are we able to hold fast? I love this. It brings the beginning and the end of it right back to where it belongs. God. Because He who promised is faithful. Why should I be faithful? Because he's faithful. You know, in the Old Testament, the first covenant was kind of based on that. God said, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to you. You be faithful to me. You guys are going to be so happy. But what happened? Israel was never faithful. Little blips in history where they were faithful for a little while. They always fell away. God never fell away. He always was there for them. When they fell away, he would bring enemies in and things to bring them back to himself. But he always was there. But they continually fell away. And whenever they did, it brought their own misery and shame. Well, what he's saying here is, God will never fall away from you. God is faithful to you. You be faithful to Him. Even if it costs you your life, God will be with you in that. God will be faithful to you. You hang on to Him. 
and you're doing the right thing, you can't get a better deal. So as we look at the book of Hebrews in this passage, it's just a logical outflow of the last one. He spent all these chapters showing us the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. The Old Testament priesthood, they had to do it over and over and over again. Jesus Christ did it once for all. Completely satisfies God so that I can draw near. When I come before God, I know that I'm being heard. I know that my prayers are coming before Him. I know that I have access into Him. Because it's not based on me. It's based on what Jesus did for me. He's my high priest. So based on all of that, what is just a logical decision? Don't fall back. Draw near. Don't set aside your confession. Hold fast. Be strong. God won't let you down.